God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. God, we are so grateful to have heard Jane's testimony today, God, and we join with her in celebrating this life transformation. God, even as she shared, I uh, found gratitude uh, welling up in my heart that nothing, not a government or a power or an authority or a structure will stand against your church. God, and even in a country where the gospel may not be um, proclaimed as publicly or as often, God, Gene's still got the chance to meet you. Now, that is pretty cool. We worship a God of power who will move the kingdom forward um, despite man's best efforts to the contrary. God, we just rally around Jane as a community of faith here at Bayview Glen. We are so grateful that she's here, and we celebrate with her her baptism Sunday. God, open our eyes and ears now uh, to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Well, listen, if, uh, if the voices of the saints of God lifted up singing, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. If you are a person of faith and those voices don't move you and something doesn't well up in your heart and gratefulness and worship to the Lord, come talk to me because we need to work something out, all right? Um, Heinz, Heinz did a fantastic job. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of Heinz. That was awesome. We actually had a guy in the first service, Marlon de Blasio. He's not here, so I can make fun of him. So, um... He had two people to baptize in the first service, and the first one was an adult, a guy named John. And so um, I told Marlon, I said, the trick to baptism is when you're baptizing somebody, you, right before you, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then you tell them, hold your nose and bend your knees. Because if they don't, they go plank. You know what I mean? And then you've got to lift all of them. You've got to like curl them out of the water. So when Marlon is pulling John out of the water like this, you know, and he pulls him out of the water. Then the second person that he baptized was a, was a kid. Uh, how old is Scott? What, 13, something like that, something like that. Yeah, some 12, yeah. So um, Marlon used the same strength with Scott that he used with John. And Scott bent his knees. So it was a lot less weight, and Scott was pushing. It's almost like he was going to shoot Scott through the other side of the baptistry when he came up out of the water. It was like, whoa, gracious me, alive in Jesus. There you go. So <laughs> Baptism Sunday really is one of my favorite, favorite Sundays, and it's a great launching pad uh, to talk about what we're going to talk about today. We're going we're to talk about grace. We're going to talk about grace, and we're going to talk about life transformation. We're going to talk about that, that transformational grace of God that takes root in our hearts, in the hearts of those who love him, and begins to change us from the inside out. And I, and I want to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One is this, is because the story that we're going to talk about today has a lot to say to those of you, listen close now, listen close, for those of you who may have known God but walked away from him. Maybe you grew up with him. Maybe you'd heard about Jesus before, and maybe you even prayed a prayer to receive Christ, or maybe you walked with him for 10, 15, 20 years, but something happened, and you got distracted, and you abandoned him, you left your faith. You're going to find a friend in Matthew today, because he was in the same boat that you 
are or that you were, even if you've returned to God, he's in the same boat that I have been before. We walk with God for a while and then and we leave him, we, we abandon him, and, and he still has grace for us. Isn't that great news? You'll find a friend in Matthew today. The, sec- the second reason I want to talk about grace and you, because Dr. Kimmel talked about grace in the family, and then I talked about grace in the church and our relationships in the church. Next week is grace in the nations, and today is grace in you, because here's the thing. I absolutely 100% believe that Bayview Glen is uniquely positioned to make a dent for the kingdom in the greater Toronto area. And just in my own personal life, over the last couple of weeks, my passion for seeing people in the greater Toronto area reached with the good news of Jesus Christ has gone up not down. You think I was excited before? You think I talked fast before? It's going to get faster because I'm just excited about what God is doing in and through Bayview Glen. How many of you say like, gosh, I'm excited about what God's doing here at our church. Isn't that cool? Yeah, absolutely. But so listen, here's the prerequisite is that you and I have to experience for ourselves the transforming grace of God. That's the prerequisite. That's the foundation. That's the starting place. When it comes to missions, when it comes to being a blessing to others as we're doing this Christmas season, when, it's, when, it, when it comes to seeing people say yes to Jesus on a regular basis, we absolutely have to find a foundation in a personal transformational experience of God's grace. And we love a transformation story, don't we? Everybody loves a transformation story. Uh, Amy and I watch Extreme Weight Loss. How many of you watch Extreme Weight Loss? And people, you know, they, 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 you know they, they're way overweight and they lose a whole bunch, of, like they use like half their body weight in a year. And at the end, you cry because, oh my gosh, it's life transformation, right? The one that, that, I, that I really loved that apparently isn't on anymore, I told like I'm, I'm kind of old. But how many of you remember what not to wear on TLC? Do you remember that? Oh, look at some of you. Some of you just, just met the Lord just now. I mean, I'm telling you what. What not to wear is this thing with um, Stacy and Clinton, right? Their names. And it's like an hour-long program. How people could tolerate this for an hour, I will never know. But I was one of those people. I loved it. I was like, oh, what not to wear is on, you know? I've seen this one four times, but I still watch it. So they take people who kind of are a mess in terms of their wardrobe, very competent, intelligent people, wonderful folks. There's a mess in terms of their wardrobe, and they give them a new wardrobe, and they give them a makeover, and it's really great. And then at the end, you cry because it's, you know, you see a transformation, Uh, We love the story in in the church about John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He met Jesus and he became an abolitionist, fought for the freedom of uh, African-American slaves that were being transported from Africa to the 13 colonies of the U.S. In fact, it prompted him to write these words, amazing grace, how sweet that sound, right? That saved a wretch like me. There's a guy that I was reading about this week, a guy named Jeff Henderson, 2001 chef of the year. In the U.S., he, he works at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, 2001 Chef of the Year. You know where Jeff Henderson learned to cook? Prison. You know what got him there? Cooking cocaine. That's where he started. But, but, then, but then he went to prison, and, and he was reformed and changed, and he got educated, and he learned and changed, and he got out, and he's like the, you know, he, it, it took a little while for him to find a job because of his felony record, but then he finally found a job, and he, here he is at Caesar's Palace, one of the best chefs in the world. We, we love, it's, it's inspiring life change, transformation. Pretty cool. Let's read about one in the scripture. How about that? Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read about life-transforming grace. If you've got your Bibles, open up Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back in front of you. It's always up here on the screen. You can use your iPhone, you can use your iPad, your Blackberry, whatever you brought. Matthew chapter 9, read along with me. We'll start in verse 9. Hear a story of life transformation. 
Scripture reads this way. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he was in Capernaum. So as he passed on from Capernaum, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, this is Jesus speaking, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I just love Jesus. Well, I'll tell you why I think that's funny in a minute. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, let's unpack the text, all right? Let's get to know our characters in the text. First one is Matthew. Matthew. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Here's what we know about Matthew. Based on his occupation, and we'll get there in a minute, Matthew would have been very, very educated, a very intelligent man. He probably would have spoken three languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, and maybe more. He, he would have been well-educated, very organized. He would have been kind of a number cruncher a little bit. Like if Matthew were around today, he'd be a wizard with an Excel spreadsheet. He was a sharp guy, educated guy. And, and because of his occupation, he also probably would have had money, maybe even a lot of money. Matthew would have been successful. But in those days, here's the thing, it would have been normal for an individual to have a couple of different names that correspond with different cultures that they live in. For example, how many of you have like a Chinese name and an English name? Anybody? Or like a name from your, from your home country and an English name? Anybody? Okay, so Matthew had the same thing. This was, this was a different name that he had, Matthew, but Mark and Luke call him Levi. They call him Levi because different names for different cultures. That name Levi was a very, very Jewish name. Matthew was very, very Jewish. And this biography of the life of Christ that Matthew uh, is writing, that we're reading today, is a very Jewish text in organization and content. He's very familiar with Jewish customs and what would matter to a person of faith, a person from the nation of Israel in that time and place. Matthew was very, very Jewish. So Here's what we know. We know he's educated. We know he likely had money. But the most important thing about Matthew, what truly defined him, was his upbringing in a God-fearing home. That's what really defined him. From a very early age, Matthew would have learned of the importance of his heritage. He would have been told stories about how the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God sent a redeemer, a rescuer in Moses. He would have been taught what a privilege it is to be a person of faith. He would have been circumcised. He would have had a bar mitzvah. He would have, told story, he would have been told stories about how this monster named Herod was still oppressing and abusing the nation of Israel. He would have known in his head and in his heart that loyalty to his God and loyalty to his upbringing was of the highest value. So, listen close. In verse 9, when it says that Jesus saw a man named Matthew and he was highlighted on the screen up here, sitting at a tax booth, sitting at a tax booth, here's what we should know, that Matthew has completely abandoned everything he's been brought up to believe. He's completely abandoned God. 
He's completely abandoned his rich history. He's completely abandoned God's people. You want to know how I know that? Here's how I know that. Here's how tax collectors made their money. The Roman government would set a tax rate, 10%, 50%, 40%, whatever that tax rate was. And instead of sending out people from the Roman government and soldiers from the Roman government to collect those taxes, what they would do is they would hire somebody in that city, in that village, in that culture, in that town to collect taxes on their behalf. So it wasn't like the Canadian government collecting taxes. It would be like a Mississauga rep and a Markham rep and a Thornhill rep. So Matthew, Levi, was the Jewish representative on behalf of the Roman government. And here's the deal. The Roman government didn't pay Matthew. Here's how Matthew made his money. He would take that tax rate of 30% or 50% or 10%, and then he would add something on top of it. And typically, it was something pretty exorbitant. He was fleecing the flock. He was abusing God's people. He was taking what did not belong to him as a tax collector. And did I mention, if people didn't want to pay taxes, either the standard rate or the tacked-on rate, then he had the Roman army standing behind him to do a little persuading. Snapping necks, cash and checks. That's how Matthew rolled, right? Did, did I mention, by the way, that the man who was in charge was that monster Herod that was abusing God's people? That monster Herod who would eventually behead John the Baptist because some little girl wanted his head on a platter? That's who Matthew was working for, abusing God's people. He had completely abandoned everything he had been brought up to believe. He had become an ally of the Roman government, Israel's worst enemy. He had betrayed his upbringing. He had betrayed his people. He had betrayed his parents. He had betrayed his God, and he had joined forces with the oppressor for the sake of money, for the sake of fame, or whatever. And here's the really, really difficult news, that some of us are like Matthew this morning. You know, we were brought up in a home that acknowledged God, maybe even a home that honored God. Maybe, maybe we were in a home that even loved and served Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you, you weren't brought up there, but later in life you met him, sometime in high school or college, or afterwards you were married, and, 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 and you said, ah, oh, maybe I'll go to church and check this thing out because I want to raise my kids here. And, and you met Jesus, and you, and you began to experience him, and you, and you got to know God, and you got to know his grace. But somewhere in that process, you got distracted by something, by, by fame, by money, whatever. And instead of sticking with a God who loves you unconditionally, you've left him. And like Matthew, you've come to the end of your rope. You've come to the end of your rope. And you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I'd kind of like to figure out how to return to this God thing. I really would. I'd like to figure out how to return to faith how to restore and renew this relationship with God, this vitality that I once had, this kind of spiritual aliveness, if I can use that word, that I once had. I want to figure out how to restore that. And this is funny. This is what people do. This is what I do too. We walk away from God and we start doing wrong things and not doing the right things and our spiritual vitality kind of dwindles. What do we figure we have to do? Do a bunch of good stuff, right? 
and stop doing bad stuff and try to put together a string of like six or eight weeks or three months or six months or whatever, depending on how bad the stuff is we were doing. And then once we put together a string of good behavior, then we can come back to church and we can kind of rekindle a relationship with God and we can have kind of some spiritual vitality. But Jesus, great news, has a totally different idea for you this morning. Look back at verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, say it with me, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, rose and followed him. Get this, because this is absolutely key for what's going on in the life of Matthew. Jesus shows up while Matthew is still sitting at the tax booth. Jesus doesn't wait for Matthew to clean up his act. He doesn't wait for Matthew to stop being a jerk. He doesn't wait for Matthew to start attending church. Jesus meets Matthew smack dab in the middle of his rebellion while he's still sitting at the tax booth where he has stolen from God's people. And guess what? For those of you who would like to return to faith, who have left something that you once knew, Jesus wants to get all up in the middle of your tax booth too. He wants to meet you right where you at, right where you're at. In order to call us out of rebellion, he meets us in our rebellion. He doesn't stand out on the edge and stand out on the outskirts and say, "Hey, get your stuff together, dude. Clean it up and then come back to me." Jesus gets close enough to you and me, close enough to Matthew that he can whisper softly, And we can hear him. Why? Because he's not way out on the outskirts. While we're still in our rebellion, while we're still in our mess, while we're still in our sin, Jesus meets us in our tax booth. So I've got a question for some of you this morning. What tax booth are you camped out at? What tax booth are you sitting at this morning? What shape does your rebellion take? Are you sitting at the tax booth of apathy? You know, it's, it takes a lot of energy to care about what God cares about, to be passionate about what he's passionate about. It takes a lot of energy, so apathy is just a little bit easier. So that's the tax booth I'm sitting at. How about the tax booth of sexual promiscuity? You know, you've run away from God's grace. You've run away from his design for your sexuality because you need to feel loved or feel cared about. Or maybe it's just a selfish thing. You know, you feel like it's a selfish pleasure that you deserve. You're camped out at your tax booth of sexual promiscuity. What about the tax booth of greed? You choose self-promotion and amassing wealth rather than generosity. What about the tax booth of alcohol or an affair? The tax booth of a victim mentality or prayerlessness. You're still sitting in your rebellion, and guess what? Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to meet you right where you're at. For for some of us, when we retreat to our tax booth and when we leave the faith that we once knew and we once had, here's the tax booth that a lot of us tend to sit at. We tend to sit at the tax booth of practical atheism. You know what that is? So when people say, like, hey, do you believe in God? You say, "Mm mm-hmm, I do. How does it make a difference? I don't know. I live as if he doesn't exist. I just do whatever I want to do. I'm 
practically an atheist, or I'm living as an atheist, or I'm practicing as someone who believes that God doesn't exist, and that's the tax booth that you sit at. And can can I tell you something? Look at me. Today's your day. Today's your day. Today is your day to accept the invitation that Jesus extends. Today is your day to experience his grace in a fresh way or maybe even for the first time. Today is your day to return to him. Today is your day to abandon your own personal tax booth and accept the invitation of Jesus. And what's his invitation? Back to verse 9. Still in verse 9. We haven't even moved on. It's going to be an hour and a half this morning. Still in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, here's the invitation, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And here's what I know about Jesus. He's not really interested in waiting on us to get our act together. I mean, he's eternal. That's about how long it would take for us to get cleaned up, wouldn't it? He doesn't wait on Matthew, and he doesn't wait on you either. He meets you in the middle of it. When when we're in the thick of our rebellion, Jesus intervenes. When we're busy running headlong in the other direction, Jesus shows up with a simple invitation to follow him. Long before we quit all the bad stuff and start doing good stuff, Jesus is pursuing, loving, and pouring out his grace on you and me. Here's the deal this morning. Some of you are camped out in your personal tax booth of rebellion, and it's time to return to the Lord. He's not shouting from the outskirts and out on the edges. He's right up in your ear whispering, and you can hear him with your spiritual ears. I know it. He's saying, follow me. Follow me. Leave your tax booth and follow me. Today's your day. Now, the scripture tells us that Matthew, Levi, uh, leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. And what's the next logical thing that we do once we start following Jesus? What's the next logical step? Well, throw a dinner party, of course. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 10. Verse 10. Uh, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now look, Matthew isn't a boastful kind of guy. So he doesn't give us all the details here because it would kind of make him look good and Matthew's desire is to make Jesus look good. But Matthew's got two buddies named Mark and Luke who also wrote a biography of Jesus and they give us a little more detail. Here's what they tell us. Number one, this isn't just a house, it's Matthew's house where Jesus is reclining. Number two, it's not like people are all just kind of reclining around a table, like hanging out together. Matthew has actually thrown what Mark calls a great feast. He throws a shindig. He throws a dinner party. He, he, he throws a, people call it, call it these days like a throwdown. I don't know, something, something. He, he has a party at his house for Jesus to introduce all of his friends to Jesus. And what kind of friends would Matthew have? Mess ups. Goofballs, look back at verse 10. 
And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, how many of you were reading along with me in the NIV, New International Version? Anybody? Anybody NIV? Okay, good, good, good. How many, look down at the NIV, and when it says he's reclining with tax collectors and sinners, tell me, does that word sinners have quotation marks around it? Yes. Do you want to know why? Because in, the, in first century Judaism, there's two different concepts for sinners. One is, it's just kind of people. It's just kind of people of the land. Sinners. That's us. Everybody. The second kind of connotation in first century Palestine, in, in Judaism, was a really disreputable and messed up group of people. The New American Standard says it this way. A particularly grievous group of sinners, the most criminal and disreputable types of people in society. This is the definition that Matthew intends. That's why in the NIV it has quotations around it. Because the NIV translation wants us to know that this is what Matthew intends. This is what he's picturing. He's not just picturing a bunch of people. He's picturing a bunch of really, really messed up people. Matthew wants his readers to know, that's us, that Jesus is hanging out with, having dinner with, reclining at table with a rather disreputable lot. In modern terms, Jesus is hanging out with, now prepare yourself emotionally. This is who Jesus is hanging out with in modern terms. Thieves, hookers, addicts, homosexuals, alcoholics, adult film stars, white-collar criminals, and gangsters, and you name it. That's who Jesus is reclining at table with. Now, here's what we know about Jesus, that his holiness stayed intact, and he didn't give in to sin or temptation. So he's not doing what they're doing, but he's hanging out with them. And what's he doing? Look back at verse 10. Look, look up here on the screen at verse 10. This word reclined is, is repeated twice in verse 10. Anytime the scripture repeats something, it's important. So what's he doing? He's not just having a brief conversation with somebody in the market. He's not just standing up like handing somebody a gospel tract and moving on. It's not a short exchange. He's reclining at table. I was in Turkey in 2004 in the Middle East, which is a similar culture to what Jesus would have been 2,000 years fast forward, but a similar culture, right? They asked me to go out to dinner. A bunch of Turkish guys one night were eating at like this outdoor restaurant. The first thing that I didn't know about Middle Eastern culture is that when you go in to sit and, and eat at an at a outdoor restaurant, especially, you, you lay down, you recline. Anybody? You recline, like you lay on your side which was weird to me because the way I eat, I need two hands, you know? So one of them was, was propping me up, and I was going, I got to eat with one hand? This is tough. I can't shovel food in as quickly as I'd like to. But I did eat my weight in lamb, so that was great. The other thing is we went to eat at like 9 o'clock, and food came, and we ate, and we had a tea and, and all that stuff. And I said, okay, lovely. That was wonderful. I'm going to head home. And they said, where are you going? Like, home. Like, it's 1030. Like, like eight is late for me. Like eight rhymes with late. It's late, all right? Eight is late for me. It's like 1039. I'm going home. They're like, what, what do you have to do? Like nothing. Like, well, then have another cup of tea. Reclining at table. We left at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> this is what Jesus is doing. He's reclining at table with sinners. He's enjoying his time. Now, here's the funny thing, that a lot of us, especially church people, and I'm a church person, I'm a church guy, I grew up in church, like me, if you're like me, you would ask the exact same question that the Pharisees are about to ask Jesus' disciples. Look up here on the screen, verse 11. 
It says that, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This doesn't seem right, does it? It's Jesus. For crying out loud, like, why is he eating with these folks? Like, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. I'll just confess to you. It doesn't feel right to me. So the Pharisees asked the disciples, why in the world is your teacher doing this? And Jesus always has a really great answer, doesn't he? Well, he's God, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the way Jesus answers them. Verse 12. He says, but when he heard it, he said, this is Jesus talking, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Great answer. Here's why I giggled a minute ago. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. <laughs> I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what he's saying. Uh, to these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these scribes who had the Pentateuch memorized, the Old Testament essentially memorized, the first five books of the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament, number one. And number two, what's he saying? You go learn what this means. Can you imagine how they felt in their heart? I know what that means. Like I have that memorized. Like I could imagine Jesus going, well, I wrote it, so... um, you know, and he wouldn't respond that way. But here, here's what he's telling him. He's telling him, look, um, mercy is what I'm calling you to. Sacrifice, obedience, that's great. But if it's divorced from mercy, if it's not paired with compassion, if it's not coupled with the desire to see God's transforming grace change the life of a grievous sinner such that you would sit at table with them, then it's an act of hypocrisy and it doesn't mean anything. In fact, in the eyes of God, it stinks. So Jesus says, you go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's what we know about Jesus from the actions that he takes when Matthew has a little feast at his house. We know that Jesus was comfortable with the most grievous sinners and the most grievous sinners were comfortable with Jesus. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus was comfortable, reclined at table with the most grievous sinners, and those grievous sinners reclined at table with Jesus. Jesus and the most grievous sinners reclined at table together. They ate together. They spent time together. They exchanged texts and tweets. They watched goofy movies late at night together. They laughed together and cried together. And I want you to know Jesus never compromised, he never budged, he never gave in to temptation, he never compromised his holiness, but Jesus and the most grievous sinners reclined at tables together. This was his custom. Now watch this, this is tough. If you and I want to be like Jesus, you know where I'm going. If you and I say in our hearts, I want to be more like Jesus, I call myself a Christian. It means little Christ. I want to be his disciple, to be his follower, to be transformed in his image. If Jesus and the most grievous sinners reclined at tables together, then being like Jesus means reclining at tables with the most grievous sinners. Like this is not complicated. It means deliberately choosing to spend time with someone that needs Jesus 
bad, that needs his grace bad. It means carving out that time in your life. It means even saying no to church functions sometimes so you can spend time with them. <gasps> and, and even though your church friends might ask you, why are you spending time with them? They're going to ask the same question the Pharisees asked. Why do you spend time? Why do you recline at table with tax collectors and sinners? Can I give you a good answer to that question if you ever get asked? Because I want to be like Jesus. Because he's great. I met a guy, just, just came to Jesus a few months ago. Just said yes to Jesus here at Baby Glen a few months ago. He said, I, I read about him and he's the most amazing man I've ever, I've ever read about. So compassionate and so forgiving, so kind and gentle. I've never known anyone like that. Like, that's what I want to be like. And if I want to walk in his footsteps, then it means reclining at table with the most grievous sinners. Good. Got time. Last comment, and then we'll be done. Last comment in terms of learning something from the text here and learning about God's grace and his transformational grace and how it impacts you and me. Um, let's go through the characters in the story one more time. You got Jesus. You got tax collectors and sinners, of which Matthew is one, and then you have Pharisees. Judgmental, angry, meanies, hypocrites, right? Three people, Jesus, tax collectors and sinners, hypocrites. That's what we've got. So if you're like me, you read a story like this, and it's difficult for you to identify with one of those folks. Like, you know... Yeah, I, I model myself after Jesus, but like I don't put myself in that same category. So now what I've got left is I'm either a Pharisee or I'm a tax collector and sinner. I'm either a hypocrite or I'm a grievous sinner. Those are my options. But, but sometimes I say, well, I'm not a Pharisee. Like, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not two-faced. I don't act. Like, I really, you know, I really try to let my words match my actions. So, and I'm not judgmental. Like, so I'm not that. And then I look at the other side, and I'm like, I'm also not like a grievous sinner, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not that messed up. Like, I'm messed up, but not that messed up. So then we create this third category called me. There's Pharisees and hypocrites, and then there's grievous sinners, and then there's me. And I'm not really either one of them. That's an arbitrary th third category of people that does not exist in this account of Matthew. Let me tell you something. Dining with Jesus means that we accept that we're the most grievous sinner of all. Reclining at table with him means that we say, you know what? I count myself among that lot. Experiencing God's amazing grace, how sweet the sound, means that we acknowledge that we are the wretch that the song refers to. Right? There's no third category. You think I'm just pulling this out of nowhere? Look up here on the screen. It's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. Deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is Paul that wrote the majority of the New Testament. Righteousness coming out of his ears. And in other translations of the scripture, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. I'm leading that parade. 
And Christ Jesus came into the world to save whom? Sinners. So if I'm going to recline at table with him, if I'm going to dine with him, if I'm going to enjoy intimacy with him, I've got to start by saying, that's me. It's not this third category. Again, experiencing God's amazing grace means that we accept that we're the wretch that the song refers to. Listen, men men and women of God, here's the deal. And I said this to start with. God has really set me on fire with a passion to reach the greater Toronto area for his sake and for his kingdom. The people in your life, your friends, your neighbors, your service providers, they don't need to be convinced that you're right and they're wrong. They don't need value shoved down their throat. You know what they need? They need grace. They need the grace of Jesus. Remember how we defined it? Undeserved favor, unmerited kindness, free goodness, poured out onto their lives. They need to recline at table with him. For those of you who have reclined at table with him, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, haven't you? All I gotta do is just get around him for a few seconds. And all of a sudden, there's something goes on in my mind that goes, man, he's good. And I wanna be like him. So our goal here at Bayview Glen, and I want you to know we're, We're just talking about some crazy stuff, even as a church, to open the doors wide for the sake of the gospel, to embrace those who are broken, to recline at table so we can all get together and go, we aren't worthy, but you know who is? Jesus. He's so good. We're actually going to talk about one of those crazy things next week but you have to come back to hear it. God is so good, isn't he? He's so gracious and so kind, and we have an opportunity to experience that, to live in that. Let's pray together. Just, you know, it was with, kind of with eyes closed, nobody looking around, just, just you, you and God. Here, here's the thing. I have a, a, a sense this morning even as I studied the passage this week, even as I uh, wrote my sermon this week, I, I, just, I just felt like God wanted me to give an opportunity for those of you who maybe found a friend in Matthew today. For those of you who, um, you know, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, maybe you didn't, maybe you met Jesus late in life, maybe you, you kind of walked with God for a while and you've, and you've walked away from him, you've abandoned him and you're sitting in your own personal tax booth Whatever that is. I don't know what it is. God does. You do. I don't. I wanted to give you an opportunity to return to him today. To accept that free invitation that he extends to you this morning to follow him. And I'm not going to lead you through a prayer. I'm not going to give you the words to say, you, you know what it is to pray. You know what it is to talk to God. You know what it is to be honest with him. And I want to just give you a a quick moment in silence, just in your heart, really quickly, go before the Lord and accept that invitation to follow him once again. Just between you and me, nobody's looking around, eyes are closed, the whole deal is just between you and me. 
that's called a life rededication. It's not in the Bible, but, but we, just, we use it as a, as a term to talk about when people return to faith and they come back to Jesus to walk with him again. If that's you, if you said, you know, today I, I just renewed my commitment and, and accepted that invitation to follow Jesus, would you just shoot your hand up for me so I know it's you? Wow. Wow. Awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. God, for those hands that just went up, I'm so grateful, God, that you used your word today and used your son Jesus and the grace that he extends and the offer of uh, salvation and goodness and, and even just a leader in life that we could follow you. God, we are grateful for your voice in our lives today. God, for the rest of us, it, it is difficult sometimes to recline at tables with, with people that we disagree with, people that we may not have much in common with, folks that our values are, are opposing in a lot of ways. And yet, Jesus, your values could not have been more opposite of the people that you reclined at table with, but you did it. Never compromised, never budged, never gave in to temptation, but because of your grace, you reclined at table. God, teach us to do the same. Teach us to be like you. God, as, even as a point of application today, uh, maybe you're even prompting hearts to throw dinner parties. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Just to cook, have people over to the house, say, hey, I met this guy named Jesus, and he's outstanding. I'd love to introduce you, just as Matthew did. God, teach us to be those kind of people that are hospitable and gracious and kind and step out in faith and trust you and open our arms wide and open the door wide for people to be embraced into the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, the people of God said, amen.